0: In episode 431 with the minimalists, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, we talk all about how to add more meaning and depth to your life. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy. Guess what, my beautiful friend, my fourth book, Comparisonitis, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others and Be Genuinely Happy is out right now. Number one, New York Times bestselling author and social media sensation Jay Shetty said, Never before has a book been more needed. Future generations will thank Melissa for shining a spotlight on Comparisonitis. And multiple New York Times bestselling author, Gabby Bernstein said, since Melissa refers to people who have recovered from comparisonitis as unicorns, I suppose that makes this a sort of unicorn training manual. I'm so grateful that such a manual has arrived. It's been infinitely helpful to me. Head to comparisonitis.com or Amazon to get your copy today. Hey beautiful, welcome back to the show. I am so excited that you are here because this episode has been one that I've wanted to record for a very, very long time. I've wanted to have these guys on my podcast for so long and it's finally happened, which I am bursting to share with you. And today you're going to learn all about the power of minimalism. Now Nick and I have been living a minimalist life for a really long time. And today we're gonna dive deep into what that means. We're also going to be talking about clutter, internal and external clutter, and what that does to your mindset and your life. We're going to talk about how to live a fulfilling and meaningful life, and the questions that you need to ask yourself before you purchase anything, plus so much more. And for those of you that have never heard of The Minimalists, They are the Netflix stars and New York Times best-selling authors Joshua Fields Milbourne and Ryan Nicodemus. Now, they are known to their audience as The Minimalist. They help millions of people live meaningful lives with less through their website, books, podcasts, and films. They have been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and GQ, and they have spoken at Harvard, Apple, and Google. With more than 100 million downloads, The Minimalist Podcast is one of the most popular shows on Apple Podcasts. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 431. Now let's get this party started with the incredible Josh and Ryan. guys, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us each what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: (laughs) I don't eat breakfast, but I did go surfing, caught a couple good waves. I got stung by a stingray for the first time ever in my life. And it wasn't as bad as I would have thought it would. I mean, it still hurt, but it wasn't as bad as what I thought it would have been.
0: Whoa. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's an interesting morning that you've had.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, but it's all good. I feel much better now.
0: Okay. I'm glad.
1: The pain is like, it was like a 10 out of 10 earlier, and now it's like a one out of 10. It's just, just had to soak it in some hot water and it's better.
0: Where did you get stung?
1: Oh, I got stung like basically between my big toe and that next toe, that next appendage over, like right in the crease there. Wow. I know. (laughs) And they are really slimy and gross, let me tell you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, that is a lot more interesting than my breakfast this morning, for sure.
2: <laughs> I should have went first. I just had a, a black coffee.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not as exciting. Well, guys, I am so pumped to have you here. It's such an honor. I watched your documentary and I have a little story to tell you. After I watched that documentary, I went to my husband and I said, right, we have to sell everything. We're getting rid of everything. And for those of you listening that have seen photos of my home online or follow me on social media or have been to my house will know that we are already very minimal. So me even saying that is hilarious because people come to our house and they go, where's your stuff? Like, (laughs) where's all your things? Like, where's all your stuff? And we very much live what you guys preach. We live a very minimalist life. But even after watching that, I was inspired to go even deeper and to remove even more from my life. So for those that are listening that have never heard of you guys, can you give a little bit of a background on how you two became The Minimalists? How did this all start for you?
2: You know, it started over a decade ago. We were sort of living the American dream. We've known each other since we were fat little fifth graders, by the way. So we've known each other forever. (laughs) Around age 18, we realized, oh, you know what? We've grown up really poor. And we thought the reason we were so unhappy growing up was because we didn't have any money. We didn't think about the, well, the household dysfunction, the alcohol abuse, the drug abuse, the physical abuse, the poverty, and all these other areas in our lives. We just thought, oh, we don't have enough money. And so as long as we climb the corporate ladder, make some money, eventually we'll be happy, we'll be content, we'll be peaceful. And so we spent our 20s climbing the corporate ladder. We worked at the same corporation together, sort of achieving. And by age 28, we both had everything we ever wanted. Six-figure salaries, luxury cars, closets full of expensive clothes, big suburban houses with more toilets than people. You know, we sort of had all the stuff to fill every corner of our consumer-driven lives. And we were living that American dream, which even in Australia and the UK and Europe, I was uh, actually doing a Spanish interview this morning. They call it the American dream. Well, it turns out, We found out later that for us, at least it was the American nightmare in a way, because yes, we had achieved certain things. We had acquired a lot of things. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it, but of course we're not happier. We're not more joyous. We're more stressed out. We're more anxious. We're more depressed than ever. And so two things happened to me in my late twenties. My mother died. My marriage ended both in the same month. And Those two events forced me to look around and start to question everything that had become my life's focus. And I realized I was focused on the wrong stuff. I was focused on so-called success and achievement. And especially in our culture, that's the accumulation of stuff, right? And so I decided to simplify. I started letting go. And over the course of about eight months, I let go of about 90% of my material possessions. Although, if you visited my home today, you probably wouldn't walk in and say, oh my God, this guy's a minimalist. No, you, you just kind of look around and say, wow, this guy and his wife and his daughter, they're pretty tidy. And that's because we don't own much, but everything we do own adds real value to our lives. Each of our belongings, our car, our clothes, our furniture has a function. As a minimalist, everything I own serves a purpose or it brings me joy and all that excess crap is out of the way. You know, when I first saw him getting rid
1: of 90% of his stuff, I thought maybe he was suicidal. Like, something is wrong with Josh. Like, what is going on? Even the people we worked with, they were like, is Josh okay? Is he depressed? What's going on with him? And uh, I said, you know what? Yeah, I think he is probably a little discontented, but he's trying to change that. And the reason why I knew he was trying to change that is because I went to him and I asked him, hey, what's going on with you? I remember when he uh, moved out of the house that him and his wife lived in, he got this apartment And it had a nice big mount for a TV. There was no TV on it, but it was like a mount hanging on the wall above this like fireplace. And I was like, what kind of TV are you gonna get? Like how big of a TV are you gonna get? And he was like, I don't know if I'm gonna get a TV, which was like really sacrilegious in our world because we used to like compare, you know, how many TVs we had, the size of our TVs, you know, uh, there's something something there probably dig into a little bit deeper, but but it really shocked me that he wasn't gonna get uh, a TV. And as time moved on, I saw him feeling lighter. I saw him feeling happier and noticed some changes in him. And I sat him down. I took him out to a really fancy place. We went to Subway and we were sitting there eating our sandwiches. And I'm like, hey, Josh, what is going on with you? Why the hell are you so happy? And that's when he told me about this thing called minimalism. And minimalism for me, I was... I was excited about it. It sounded like some common sense stuff, right? But unfortunately, you know, common sense, it's not too common these days. I got to a point in my life where I was deep in debt. I was pacifying myself with drugs, alcohol, consumer purchases, just everything that I could. So I needed a change. And I was excited when he told me about minimalism, because it seemed like a way for me to change the way I was living my life and really to regain control of my time, to regain control of my finances. So I looked up at Josh and I excitedly announced. I'm like, all right, dude, I'm in. I'm a minimalist. Now what? Like, I had not know where to start, <laughs> but I knew I wanted to be a minimalist. So we came up with this crazy idea called a packing party where we decided to pack all my belongings as if I were moving. And then I would unpack only the items I needed over the next three weeks. So Josh came over and literally helped me box up everything. My clothes, kitchenware, towels, TVs, electronics, frame photographs and paintings, my toiletries, even my furniture. We literally pretended like I was moving. So I started unpacking things day by day, my toothbrush, some bed and bed sheets, clothes for work, the furniture I actually used, some kitchenware, a tool set, just the things that were adding value to my life. And after those three weeks, I had 80% of my stuff still sitting in those boxes, just sitting there unaccessed. And I had a lot of revelations. I thought about how I was spending my time, how I was spending my money, how I brought all these things into my life to make me happy, but they weren't really doing their job. So I decided to let go of all of it. And that's, that's really where the minimalists.com started. It started with that 21 day packing party story.
0: Mm, I love it. So it's not about getting rid of every single belonging that you have, but yet instead making everything that you bring into your home, making sure that it offers value to you and brings you joy. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, we see, in America at least, we see over 5,000 advertisements a day. A day! It's more than a million a year. And what are these advertisements telling us? They're telling us that we have a problem and they they know the solution for it. If we just get this one thing, it's going to solve the problem that we have. And what we do is we start to consume unconsciously. We start to consume because, hey, even as one of the minimalists still, if I get something new, there's an ephemeral rush that happens, right? And there's nothing wrong with buying something new. The problem is when we chase that rush. It's when we chase that ephemerality. So yes, of course, you know, Josh and I are not about deprivation. We're not the deprivationists. That domain was taken. No, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, we're we're not deprivationists. We're very clear that, hey, there are things we need in our life. We all need to consume some things. The key is to own the appropriate amount of stuff and then let go
2: of the rest. I agree that consumption isn't the problem. It's consumerism that's the problem, right? Let's talk about what consumerism is. Consumerism is just the ideology that buying things is going to make me happier or more complete. And so we're always thinking about more, more, more. Our society propagates a message of more, and yet we never stop to consider less. How my life be better with less. Our last film on Netflix starts with that line because it's an individual question. There's a reason that Ryan and I can't hand you a list of the 100 things you should own and now you'll be happy because the 100 things or the 200 things or the 10,000 things are gonna be different for you than they are for me. The things that add value to my life may not add value to yours and vice versa. In fact, the things that added value to my life a decade ago may not add value today. So it's constantly questioning. Minimalism is not a destination. It is a tool that we use to assess what adds value to our life and what is in the way. And we do that by considering less. How might your life be better with less is the question we start with. The only way we can get there is if we identify what is enough. We never talk about enough. We're always trying to get more, more followers, more subscribers, more money, more status, more wealth, more square footage, more cars, more things in our life. But those things that we desire end up becoming the objects of our discontent shortly after we acquire them.
0: Mm, Absolutely. So what drove you to wanna create a documentary about this?
2: The first one we sort of well, we sort of stumbled into it. Everything we've done over the last, it's been 11 years now since we started The Minimalists. Total right.
1: accidents, like accident after accident after accident.
2: <laughs> yeah, this was not planned. And and so what we did 11 years ago, we started this, this blog. We didn't even know it was called a blog at the time. Ryan and I started a website <laughs> and we started writing essays. He came to me because I'd been writing fiction throughout my 20s. And he's like, hey, I know you're passionate about writing. Maybe we could apply it in some other way. And so we started The Minimalist and then we had been writing, we built this audience, you know, over the course of the first year, we had you know, several hundred thousand people reading the blog because people find value in something. They tend to share it with their friends and families. So they're sharing these different essays that we were writing with their sister or brother or mother. And, and it started spreading. And what we learned is, hey, people actually want a book about minimalism. So we wrote our first book. It was called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. And then we went out on a book tour with that and and just sort of went city to city, 33 different cities across the U.S. and Canada. Eventually, we ended up in Australia, the U.K. and, and other places. We're in the middle of our 10th tour right now in 11 years. It's called the Love People Use Things Tour. And along the way, we've found different vehicles, whether it's touring or social media or the blog, or we started a podcast six years ago, The Minimalist Podcast, or these Netflix documentaries that we've done. And we just said, hey, we've never made a documentary before. We've never even tried it. But why not give it a shot? Because originally, I just wanted to write. but. Then I became vehicle agnostic. I realized that some people get value from writing, whether it's a blog, other people get value from books, other people get value from video. And so why don't we create something? It just turns out that that first documentary, which was called Minimalism, it really spread the message in a different way. You know, 190 countries it's in, and a lot of people started finding value in what it means to live a meaningful life with less.
0: What are some of the noticeable or the tangible things that you have noticed since becoming minimalists? Like, what have you noticed within yourself and within your relationships? How has it bettered your life?
1: Oh, man. I mean, so many different things, really. I mean, I guess to think about like the first way it really changed who I am as a person. like I just remember sitting in front of that pile of stuff that I had still sitting in those boxes, you know, the 80% of my possessions. And I remember having this kind of conversation with myself about What's important to you in life? Because it certainly isn't sitting in these boxes. And I started to think, well, you know, my health, like that's important. If I'm unhealthy, then what do I have? Relationships. If you don't have good people in your life, then what kind of life are you living? You know, I, I felt like I was passionate. I wanted to find a passion project to spend my time on and really dive into. I really love contributing beyond myself in a meaningful way. And and through all of that too, there's a lot of growth that happens. So, and that's really what our first book, Minimalism, was about. It's about those five areas that I just kind of went through there. But when I looked at all that stuff, I realized that maybe I could sit there and tell myself like, hey, that's what you're focused on, or that's what your priorities are. But really, I realized like my priorities, it's not what I say they are, it's what I do with my time. So our priorities, and it helped me to refocus what my priorities were and what I could actually just live my life with. So that was, that's like where it all began and really where everything started to change. But that has led to some financial freedom, paying off debt. I feel like living a debt-free life, I feel like that is the new American dream. You know, it used to be the house and the picket fence and the cars and the nice job. But now it's like, we just want to be debt-free. So I've been able to do that. I, like I said, you know, earlier, the reason why I even started this whole journey was to reclaim my time, to reclaim my finances. And I've really been
2: able to do that. You know, freedom was the biggest thing for me. We develop all these attachments in our lives. In our new book, it's called Love People Use Things. We talk about complexity versus simplicity. And the word complex has the Latin root complex, which just means to interweave two or more things together. And so what have we done? We've interwoven all of these obligations. I mean, look at our calendars. We're so busy. Look at our stuff. Look at our homes. We're so cluttered. But those material possessions, the outward clutter, is simply a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. If we have a lot of external clutter, a lot of physical clutter, we probably have a lot of mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, relationship clutter, career clutter, calendar clutter. Man, we're living some cluttered lives. Another way to say that is some complex lives. If you look at simple, however, simplex just means one deriving from one. And so so we have complex, we have simple. We have to uncomplex our lives in a way. And how do we do that? How do we make our lives, quote, better, as you asked? Well, it's never about achieving something, acquiring something, pursuing something. It's about uncovering the happiness, the peace, the tranquility that's already there. It's not about adding on to our lives to become better. We subtract from our lives to find the beauty The essence that's already there. It's interesting. I wish I could say like, "Hey, watch our documentary, read our books,
1: listen to our podcast," and you were gonna be the happiest person you've ever been. I mean, you know, Josh and I—we don't promise happiness. What we do promise is helping someone figure out what a meaningful life is for them. And you know, I remember when I was a kid, I uh, was thinking to myself, like, you know, what's what's the point of life? I, I remember hearing. Different people ask this just growing up, whether it was in a you know, movie or maybe it was you know, my mom or dad or something, just that always getting thrown out there. And I remember I was contemplating on that. And as a kid, I was like, oh, like the point of life is to be happy. I mean, it's even written in our constitution uh, in the United States, the pursuit of happiness. And I would say that I really did my daggone best at pursuing happiness. And even every once in a while, I would probably even grab it. I got a new promotion. There's that ephemeral burst of happiness. I got that raise with the promotion, a little boost of ephemeral happiness. i get a new car, ephemeral happiness. So every time I would get that, it was like in my fingertips and then gone. And I just was constantly chasing that next happy moment. And really what I've come to appreciate through this whole journey is that I don't focus on, on happiness itself anymore because happiness is an ephemeral feeling. In fact, if you look at like a graph, X, Y, and and X is time and Y is level of happiness, if all of a sudden you're at a very high level of happiness at a consistent level, well, then you're actually flat. And that becomes the, the new norm. So if I could take a pill, and you know what? There's plenty of pills out there that you know could give you that ephemeral happiness. I used to take a lot of them. Hmm. And I'll tell you, they work, but only for a little bit. And then eventually you have to take that pill just to feel normal because that high happiness level has become the new normal. So now, instead of focusing on happiness, what I focus on is living a meaningful life. So what does that mean? Well, for me, it's my short-term actions aligning with my long-term values with aligning with those beliefs. And that's how I can look in the mirror and really feel like, I'm doing the best job that I can. Now, here's the beautiful thing about living a meaningful life. is every once in a while, you do get this, this these bursts of happiness. You do get that ephemeral feeling because it is a beautiful byproduct of living a meaningful
2: life. But you're not chasing it. And that's the nice part. The, the image you're conjuring in my mind right now is like someone grasping for happiness, like picking up an ice cube. And then of course it melts, but we try to cling to that ice cube. So it's dripping off our, and then it's gone. But what are we doing? We're stuck clinging. But now we're doing that with our stuff. We're doing it with our relationships. We're even doing it with experiences, right? And so letting go is actually not something you do. Letting go is something you stop doing. You stop clinging to the excess stuff. You stop clinging to toxic relationships. You stop clinging to the outcome. You stop clinging to busyness and filling your calendar. That's how you let go. You don't actually have to do anything to let go. You just have to stop clinging.
0: And I think it's really important to work out what is a meaningful life to you? Like, what does that mean for you? Because we're all so different and getting really clear on what does that mean for you is a great place to start.
2: Yeah. So I think that's a good point because... Life isn't inherently meaningful, meaning you weren't born to do one specific thing. People get really overwhelmed with that too. What am I supposed to do with my life? What is my life's purpose? As though there is one thing you're supposed to do, do it well for the rest of your life. In fact, we see it on like these posters at universities and corporate offices where it says, follow your passion. Well, what terrible advice... If you're presupposing that you have a pre-existing passion, you were born to be an astronaut or a yoga teacher or a businessman or an accountant or whatever it might be. Now, the thing is, you can be any of those things as long as they align with the person that you want to be. If they align with your values, wonderful. But the truth is, there are dozens of things that you can find meaning in And meaning isn't necessarily this grandiose thing. We just did a great podcast episode with Ken Coleman. He wrote a book called From Paycheck to Purpose. And on that podcast episode, he was talking about how you can find great meaning. He had stories in his book about how people who are janitors at a high school find tremendous meaning in their work. You know, my brother, he builds cabinets back in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he can find tremendous meaning in that as long as it aligns with his values. Yeah. And you know, when we try to sit down and really kind of list out what a
1: meaningful life is to us, it's not necessarily a super easy thing. So, you know, someone listening to this, watching this, if they're interested in really getting clear on what a meaningful life is to them, they should start with really getting clear on what their values are. In fact, in our book, Love People Use Things, we have a values worksheet in there that really helps us get clear on the nuance of our values. Maybe talk about the structure of the values.
2: Yeah, so basically, if you look at your values, they're kind of like a house. You know, everyone has values of some sort. The problem is we don't know what they are. And so if you don't know what they are, we tend to focus on the values that actually get in the way. So if you're building a house, you have to have a foundation. So we have foundational values. And then as soon as you figure out what size house you want, where you want the rooms to be, you have a structure. So you have structural values. So the foundational values, I think they're all pretty much the same for everyone. Everyone has a value for health for relationships, for creativity, for personal growth, for the ability to contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way, and a few others. And so we all have similar foundations, but where we start to become different is our structure. All of our sort of houses look different. You might prefer a giant open floor plan. Other people might want an extra bedroom here or or whatever it might be. You build the house around your life. You don't try to cram a life into someone else's house. And then we have the surface value. These are the things that make life interesting. You might even call them interests or preferences. You know, things like playing sports or board games, things that you value sort of that are superficial. In fact, that term superficial is fascinating because we treat it as though it's a bad thing. Oh, isn't that just superficial? Well, it's like, yeah, painting your house is superficial. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, we don't want to do that at the exclusion of our other values. That's where we run into a problem, right? If your house is on fire, you don't want to try to paint it today. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Unfortunately, we have this fourth category of values. So we have the foundation, we have structure, and we have surface values. And then this fourth one is the most dangerous. We have imaginary values. These are the things we pretend are important. The things that we dedicate a lot of time to, think uh, Instagram or TikTok or being on the internet for two hours a day and then looking up with drool on yourself and thinking, Where, what have I been doing? And it doesn't feel particularly meaningful. It feels pleasurable in the moment. But after the fact, it doesn't feel like you've done anything. You haven't been in that, that creative flow state, that state of no mind. And these things often get in the way. It's like building a giant fence around your house without a door that you can't get to any of your values because you're spending all your time on these things that are imaginary. And so if you're not clear on what those values are, then quite often we will just go to the lowest common denominator. We'll take the path of least resistance and we'll focus on those imaginary values. And then that'll happen for a year or two years or 10 years or four decades. And all of a sudden you turn around and, oh my gosh, what have I been doing with my life?
0: So for someone listening who would love to explore minimalism, is uncovering your values the first place to start? Is that what you would suggest when someone comes to you and walks up to you in the street and says, I want to give this thing a go? Is that the first place you would suggest?
2: I think minimalism kind of starts with the stuff because we're so steeped in a, a consumer culture, but that's just the initial bite at the apple that sort of changes things for us. And so it starts with the stuff. We deal with that excess clutter, the external clutter. So we can start to look inward eventually and get to things like our values. So if I'm starting with the stuff, I really want to understand what the, the why, not the how. The The problem isn't that you have a shortage of decluttering tips, right? That's why you don't ever see me and Ryan talk about, here are the 67 ways for you to declutter your kitchen cabinets. And the reason we don't do that is because that's not the problem. A shortage of decluttering tips is not the problem. The problem is our attachment to stuff. And so I don't start with the how-to side of things. We can get to that in a moment. But I really start with the why-to side of things. That question I asked earlier, how might your life be better with less? If you can answer that question, if you can get great clarity around that question, truly understand the purpose of simplifying, well, then the how-to becomes much easier and it tends to actually take care of itself. You know, when Ryan did his packing party or when I started letting go of some of my material possessions, I didn't really need a how-to. As soon as I got really clear on the why, man, you just find ways to start letting go. Now that said, if people are like confounded or confused, they're overwhelmed because, oh my gosh, I've got 300,000 items in my house. I'm the average person, right? I've got so many things. Where, where do I even start once I'm clear on the why? Well, we have a few things. So in the book, we have 16 rules for living with less, but they're not really rules, they're boundaries. And so I'll give you an example of a few of them. I think they're pretty helpful. One is called the seasonality rule. We also call it the 90-90 rule. And here's how it works. You pick up any item that you own you could say you pick up a sweater. Hey, have I used this in the last 90 days? If the answer is no, then I've got to be honest. Am I going to use it in the next 90 days? Hence the 90-90 rule. And if the answer to that is no again, so no and no, then I give myself permission to let go. Now, of course, that's adjustable. You can make it 30 days or you can make it 365 days. That's why it's not a true rule. It's just a boundary you're setting up so we don't continue holding on to the things that are no longer serving us. A couple more rules for you, Ryan. You want to talk about the spontaneous combustion
1: rule? Yeah, that's my favorite rule. And really, like these boundaries. This is what you know we've uncovered over the last ten years, and I'm sure you know ten years from now we'll have some more boundaries that we've set up because our lives will look different. But the spontaneous combustion rule. We were at a an event in Pittsburgh, and uh, we were doing a live podcast, and we have a live Q and A. And this woman was up at the microphone and she was like, you know, when I was 16 years old, my mom, she did a really nice thing. She printed out a bunch of pictures of me and my friends and me from when I was a baby, you know, kid growing up, Halloween costume. She's printed this out on pieces of fabric. And she sewed this together in a quilt. And she gave it to me for my 16th birthday. And she was like, I was just in love with it. It was amazing. It was like this sentimental that I actually used and really enjoyed it. She's like, but you know, now I'm older. And she was like, it doesn't really fit my decor anymore. It doesn't really fit with anything in my house. So what I've done is I've just folded this up. I've put it in a box and I set it on my shelf in the closet. And I really, really just need some advice on what to do with this. And all of a sudden, I just had this idea. I was like, well, let me ask you something. What if you went home from this event tonight and you found out that that quilt spontaneously combusted? How would you feel? And like her shoulders dropped. She was like, oh, I would feel relief. And I'm like, well, that's that's a pretty clear sign that you're allowed to let that go. Now, does that mean you have to throw it in the trash? No, you could certainly donate that. I know there's someone out there who would see that quilt And they would be like, oh, this is a great avant-garde piece to add to my uh, collection at home, whatever it is, But so she could donate it. But that's really what the spontaneous combustion rule is, is we can pick up anything, any of our possessions, and we can ask ourselves, how would I feel if this spontaneously combusted? Would I be devastated? Would I replace it? Would I miss it? Would I temporarily go without it? Would I be relieved? And when we ask ourselves that question, we really get clear on the things that are and are not
2: adding value to our lives. Yeah, so if you'd replace it, then obviously hold on to that thing. It's not about depriving yourself of that thing. If you know, like if this microphone spontaneously combusts I'm speaking into, of course I'd replace it. I wouldn't be overwhelmed by it. I wouldn't be saddened by it. I'd be slightly inconvenienced by it, right? And I certainly wouldn't be happy about spending more money on it. So I'm going to keep it. But if it spontaneously combusted and I'm like, oh, thank goodness. That's finally out of my life. Well, that is a sign (laughs) to let go. I'll give you one more rule here that I think is really helpful. We call it the no junk rule. Everything you own or everything you are thinking about purchasing can fit into one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential, or it's junk. So that first category, essential, in fact, this word's been coming up a lot over the last two years, right? Essential workers, essential travel, essential businesses. But what about the people who have been spending more time at home? They're looking around their houses and they're saying, okay, what is actually essential in my life? And we're realizing a lot of the things we're holding on to aren't just not essential, but they're not adding any value at all. Now, here's the truth. We all have pretty much the same essentials. We all need food, shelter, clothing, transportation. Now those things manifest differently. You might have a car and Ryan might take the bus. Someone else might take the subway. We have different ways of transporting ourselves, but we all have some sort of need to have transportation. Uh, We have clothing. Now that manifests differently as well. You might be wearing a a button-up shirt or a dress or a t-shirt or whatever, but we all have clothing, food, shelter, same thing, right? And so we all have similar essentials. It's the second category that really makes life interesting. These are the non-essentials but these are the things that add value to our lives. So strictly speaking, I don't need my dining room table. I could live without it. My family, my wife, my daughter could live without our couch. We would live without it, but these things add value to our lives. So it's not about getting rid of those things. The problem is everything that's in that third category, junk. These are the things we pretend are essential or value adding, but they're actually getting in the way of the things that add value to our lives. So as a minimalist, that's really the paradox. I get far more value from the few things I own than if I were to water them down with hundreds of thousands of useless trinkets that simply get in the way.
0: It's the quality, you know, over quantity, isn't it?
2: I think so. Sometimes quantity is what's appropriate, right? And so it's understanding that sometimes the best quantity is zero and we don't need any quantity of the thing at all. Quite often people say, if I get rid of this, what should I replace it with? Or should I replace it with an experience even? And that sounds like a more virtuous thing, but that can be another type of consumerism as well. If we think that, oh, you know what the problem is, I tried to buy a bunch of luxury cars, I tried to buy a bunch of things that were gonna make me happy, that didn't work. You know it will make me happy if I chase happiness through experiences. Well, that will end up making us miserable as well. There's nothing wrong with experiences. There's nothing wrong with stuff. Our problem is we think it's going to make us better. We're going to become someone different if we consume those things or if we consume those experiences. And so we can be careful about what we set out to do, what we set out to experience, what we set out to buy. Because as we set out to buy those things, if it just turns into a chase, well, we're going to make ourselves Miserable. Now, it's a low-grade misery. We don't get bowled over with depression right away, but we start to feel discontented. And then we start to feel discontented in various areas of our lives. Our sex life, our honesty falls to the wayside because we start lying to our significant other about purchases. That's a big one for people. Or we start just cluttering our lives slowly and, you know what, that thing didn't work for me, so maybe it's the, I need one more of that thing. Oh, you know what, those things didn't work. I need a better version of that thing. It constantly becomes a chase and it never ends until we decide to subtract, to stop adding.
0: And would you suggest once people start to declutter and get rid of some of the things that... They give them to a charity or they give them to friends because I try and live as zero waste as I possibly can. I don't want to add to landfill if I can avoid it. So what I do is I give it to a charity, this little charity shop near me. So I'll drop it off there or I'll give it to a friend. I just had a friend come over last week and I had a massive bag of clothes. And I said, I'm about to get rid of these. Do you want them? And she took everything bar two things out of this bag. Nice. So, you know, things that I'm not wearing anymore. She's like, are you sure you don't want this? This is beautiful. Are you sure? And I was like, "I, I haven't worn it. It's yours, babe. Take it. So what do you suggest? Do you suggest charities or friends? What do you suggest?
2: There's a whole process here. By the way, that's the beauty of letting go. If you let go of something that's not adding value to your life, it doesn't mean that someone else won't get value from it. In fact, it's almost certain to add more value elsewhere if it's just sitting collecting dust. It's essentially you've turned your house into a landfill or a mausoleum of stuff. So here's what Ryan and I do. We have a simple process. We set up some boundaries here. So if something is more than X dollars, for me it's $20. You pick whatever number is appropriate for you. Maybe it's $100. If it's more than $20 for me, I try to sell it. If it doesn't sell in seven days, I lower the price. If it doesn't sell within 30 days, I donate it to a local charity. If a local charity won't take it, I'll try to recycle it. If I can't for some reason recycle it, then as an absolute last resort, it will end up in a landfill. But if you're doing that for each item that you're going through, now there are some things you'll just skip the sell process altogether because it's not worth selling and you can donate it and that's fine. But if you go through that process with each item, you end up with far fewer things in the landfill and you're letting go of the things that are in the way. Yeah, this makes me think about how people will will write
1: in and and call in and they'll ask us. They're like, you know, I'm holding on to a couple things that I know I can't donate them, I can't sell them. I know that they're gonna end up in a landfill, and I just can't bring myself to like add the waste to that. I don't want to hurt the environment, which minimalism is a byproduct has a lot of good effects on the environment. You know, when you consume less, well, you produce less waste, but. Usually what I'll tell someone who's kind of hesitating to get rid of that item and dispose of it properly is I try to help them see that as soon as they bought that item, as soon as they took it off the shelf and brought that home with them, the damage to the environment has already been done. Hanging on to it for some, you know, it seems like a really valiant reason, but really it's hanging on to a little bit of stress and a little bit of clutter in your mind. And, you know, anyone listening who's maybe going through that, I want to give them permission. Like, go ahead and let it go, dispose of it properly. Of course, there are certain items, like if it's a battery or something, you know, there are certain items you have to get rid of appropriately. So they don't literally damage the environment. But once you bought that product, the damage is already done. And the other thing I'll say too, Josh was talking about selling the items. And I remember when I was getting rid of my stuff after the packing party, I was selling some things. And I had a real big difficulty with getting rid of things that cost me a lot of money. So, for example, we worked in telecommunications and we had cell phones. And some of these cell phones, they were legitimately, you know, when they were new, they were worth $500, $600. And I had a drawer full of these things because we worked for the phone company. And so, what I saw in that drawer was, you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of phones sitting there. So, I thought to myself, well, I'm gonna sell these and I'm going to uh, at least get a 1,000, right? Let's say if I could just get half of what their original worth was. Well, they weren't selling because they were outdated. So I wasn't gonna donate them because in my mind, I'm like, well, they cost so much money. Like I'm not, I can't just give them away. (laughs) And what I had to really get comfortable with was this term called sunk cost. The cost of those phones, it's gone. That money is out of my bank account. I'm never gonna recoup it. And I have to accept the fact that some of the things that I really wish I could sell for, you know, hundreds of dollars, I'd be lucky to get tens of dollars for them. So sunk costs that really helped me, to just help me let go of some items that I was really having trouble holding on to because of the value, the perceived value they had to me.
0: Mm. It's so interesting because I'm thinking about, yeah, that's happened to me as well, where I have gone, but I can't, I've spent so much money on this. And almost like a sick feeling in my stomach. For the amount of money that I've spent on this product or this item, and to just give it away or to sell it and it not sell. Like there's a mental shift that you need to go through. There is a process of letting go. And like you said, the damage is already done once you've purchased it. So that's really, really fascinating. And I want to share a story with you because a couple of years ago, I'm not sure if you remember, but we had some severe fires in Australia and we. Had to evacuate our home. And I remember packing, and it was quite a rush. And I just got this little suitcase. And my husband was in LA at the time, and I was here by myself. And I remember going, What should I put in the suitcase? Like, what do I put in here? Like, if this is the last time I see this house, what do I put in here? And I literally put my toothbrush, a few items of clothes, and my passport. And that was it. And I got out and, you know, I'm wearing my wedding rings. I've got a beautiful necklace around my neck that my husband gave me. That was it. And this was pre-baby. So of course, if I had my baby, I would have definitely grabbed her and, and things like that. But I didn't have anything that was so sentimental to me that I couldn't live without. And that kind of was really interesting for me, a really interesting process of letting go of like... I didn't have any of this attachment to things.
1: It's incredible. What you were living there is the embodiment of the willingness to walk away. And, you know, I'll say like one of the number one things, almost a superpower that I've gained from this whole experience of simplifying and letting go is I really am willing to walk away from anything, and you know it's not just my stuff. I even look at this with uh, relationships. I love Josh; he's my best friend. But you know, there might be a time where I need to walk away, and I'm willing to at least consider that. But the beautiful thing is that when i put myself in that mindset, it actually affirms the things, the people that I have in my life because I don't want to walk away from them. So yeah, well, yeah, that is the embodiment of you're willing to walk away from anything. And doesn't that just feel? Isn't that freeing to like just have that feeling of the willingness to walk away?
0: And it's a lightness, like there was a real lightness to it. And I'm not sure if you guys, like, I'm sure you experience this, but when you let go of the attachment to all of these things, relationships and objects, like there is a lightness. And that definitely feels much better than that weight of the clutter, physical and emotional clutter that a lot of us carry.
2: You were talking about the sunk cost thing earlier and how we struggle with that. Well, one of the reasons that it's so painful for us is because we never stop to consider the true cost of our things. If you go to buy a bread maker and it's $200, that's the price tag of the thing, but that's not the actual cost of the thing. There's the space the thing takes up. So you have to have a large enough kitchen. At some point you need a larger kitchen. You might have to remodel your house by after you buy enough appliances, right? So there's that cost, the cost of storing the thing. And eventually when we let go of the thing, we don't usually get rid of it. We put it in a storage locker or a basement or an attic or a closet or Somewhere, some mausoleum of stuff, right? Or we go to the container store and we buy these clutter coffins and we just hide our clutter. We become well organized hoarders. It's one of the worst things. Now, the professional organizers, they totally get this. But the amateur folks like me and Ryan, we're not professional organizers. Organizing's the problem. Organizing allows us to neatly And in a tidy fashion, hold on to a bunch of things that aren't serving us anymore. I used to be one of those well-organized hoarders. I had a lot of stuff like a hoarder does, but I had it neatly displayed in boxes and bins and alphabetized rack. And so it might look okay, but there's a cost behind that. The emotional cost, the psychological cost, the weight that it places on your relationships, the discontent, the tension you have with other people, the tension you have with yourself. And oh, by the way, what are the other costs? Sometimes you have to change the oil in the thing or give it a tune-up or put new batteries in the thing, power the thing, charge the thing, worry about the thing. And when it's all said and done, you have to replace the thing. There's so many costs when we buy a thing. And these costs usually extend far beyond the price tag.
0: It's really important to consider that. And anytime something that I personally do is anytime I whip out my card, my credit card, I ask myself, do I really need this thing and will it bring me joy? And it is such a simple practice that really makes you stop and consider everything that is coming into your home and life. And I'm curious to hear. If because of the pandemic over the last couple of years, I know for me personally, it really did make me look at my life even deeper and want to simplify my life even more. Have you noticed that during the pandemic, people are wanting to minimalize even more and simplify even more? And if so, why do you think that is?
2: Yes and no. I mean, here's the thing. We're asking that question, what is essential, right? And so people have been in their houses. And in fact, I remember early on in the pandemic, someone tweeted us and they were like, hey, look at these minimalists. I bet they're upset they got rid of all that stuff. And now they're coming home. They don't have those things anymore. And my response to that is, yeah, I really miss those third grade basketball trophies and that broken waffle iron. I'm so upset that I got rid of those things. I remember at another event we were doing in Dallas, someone came up to the microphone. And they said, it seems like you guys didn't get rid of anything important. And Ryan just kind of looked at the guy and goes, yeah, that's right. Because that's the point. There's a lot of things that are unimportant. And those are the things that we got rid of. Now, the things that are important to me today, just like when I was three years old, there were things that were important to me. They're not important to me anymore. And so I continue to question. The things in my life. Otherwise, I'll accidentally cling to all of those things. Ryan talked about walking away earlier. Having that willingness to walk away is so important, not just to things, but to people as well. Because what's the alternative to that? Well, uh, I never walk away from my marriage. So what? You're going to stay in it and cling to the person, even if one of you is unhappy or if the other person starts uh, being emotionally abusive. I'm never going to walk away? No, I don't want to be obligated to my things to my commitments, to my career. I don't want to be obligated to any of that because I want to be able to show up because I want to show up because I get to show up. The alternative to that is, oh man, I guess I have to show up. And that just doesn't feel good for anyone. And the same thing is true with our stuff. It doesn't feel good if it feels if I feel compelled to hold on to it. Another one of those rules that we have is the just in case rule. And here's the thing about our <laughs> stuff, right? We have these Three words, just in case. They're the three most dangerous words in the English language because they justify, well, holding on to just about everything. We can hold on to anything. I'll just hold on to that just in case. I'll go ahead and do this just in case. Well, we're holding on to things just in case we might need them in some non existent hypothetical future. And Ryan and I came up with this rule. We also call it the 2020 rule. Any just in case item I'm holding on to, I can let go of it. And if I absolutely need to replace it, I can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes, wherever I am. Now, Ryan and I used to live in the middle of nowhere, Montana. One traffic light, 3,400 square miles. That rule still applied there. Let's talk about why it applies. Because at first, it sounds like this rule of privilege. Oh my God, I don't want to go around and spend $20 every single day replacing all these just-in-case items. Well, no, nonsense. Between the two of us, we've had to use that rule five times in the last decade. We came up with that rule literally a decade ago this month. And what I realized is I basically have spent $100 over the last 10 years, and that $100 has given me permission to let go of tens of thousands of just-in-case items. Because it turns out you almost never have to use that rule because you almost never need those just-in-case items that are collecting dust in a junk drawer or in that box that you move from house to house to house that still hasn't been opened, but you're holding onto it just in case. I
1: gotta tell you how we came up with that rule. So it was our very first tour stop. Uh, we drove from Dayton, Ohio, down to St. Petersburg, Florida. It was our first tour stop for our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. And we, we get to where we're staying. We open up the trunk. And all I see, I see like two... Duffel bags, there's a suitcase, there's a garment bag. And all I can, the irony is just hitting me because we're only on the road for like a week, maybe it was 10 days. And I'm like, dude, we are the biggest hypocrites. Like, why do we have all this stuff on our trunk? And we started to really go through what we brought. And, you know, we were down in Florida. So maybe I wanted to go swimming. So I brought a pair of swim trunks. Well, what if I wanted to go swimming twice and that pair of swim trunks, what if they got dirty? I would need a clean pair. So I brought multiple pairs of swim trunks. I brought multiple pairs of shoes. Well, I want my beach shoes. I got my workout shoes, dress shoes for some reason. Like Josh had packed a suit with him. I think, you know, in case there was like an emergency funeral or wedding that he needed to go to. Um, I mean, there were all these just in case items, uh, multiple toothbrushes. And we just kind of laughed and realized how ridiculous it was. And yeah, we came up, that was like one of the first boundaries we came up with and and wrote about. It It was that 2020 rule.
0: And what was one of the items that you actually needed to purchase again in that 10 years from the just in case list?
2: Yeah, it's not going to be sexy. I I can promise (laughs) you that. Uh, I had a pair of scissors that I had to replace. I had a pair of nail clippers that I had to replace. There were these things where it was like, oh, you know, I don't need that second pair of nail clippers to keep at the office or whatever. And then it was like, well, actually, yeah, yeah, I do. And so there are things that we use that it's like, okay, yeah, I thought I was holding on to it just in case. We have this other rule. It's called the just for win rule. And so this goes along well with the just in case rule because there are some things you buy that you're wait, you're holding on to just for win. Like, Toilet paper, for example. You don't just buy your toilet paper one little square at a time. No, you buy, go and buy four-pack, eight-pack, 12-pack, whatever it is of toilet paper just for when you need it. The same is true with your toothpaste. You don't buy your toothpaste one nurdle at a time. You buy a tube or two, and you use it, and you have the other one, a backup or whatever, just for when you'll need it. That is not a just-in-case item. You know, and they're generally consumable items, but you know that you're going to use that thing. It may not adhere to to the just-in-case rule exactly, or the seasonality rule, et cetera. There's one other kind of just-in-case item that actually spawned another rule for us. It's called the emergency item rule. Emergency items are just-in-case items that we hold on to in case of emergency that we hope we never have to use. So there's a handful of things there. We, in fact, we did a whole podcast episode about emergency items. Ryan and I sort of walk through our emergency items that we have, and they're also location dependent. When we lived in Montana and it was crazy snowy in the mountains, we had to have chains for our tires and jumper cables, and so like, there's certain things you need that you may not need when you're living in California, for example. And so having a few emergency items, but we have to even be careful with that because most emergencies aren't emergencies and we turn everything into an emergency. And so you know, being careful about that, but also recognizing, okay, I have a first aid kit in my car. It's a just in case. I certainly hope I don't have to use it again, but if I do, I have it there in case of emergency. Yeah, the 2020 rule makes me think about
1: the things that I felt so relieved to like give myself permission to let go of. So one of them was I had a drawer full of these like paint shirts. So in our business that we had, there were a lot of conferences and trade shows and different events where you get a free t-shirt. And I would hold on to these t-shirts because, you know, I was like, well, I do yard work. And, you know, sometimes I paint (laughs) and working around the house. So I really want a t-shirt that I feel okay messing up Well, the problem is, is I had like 20 of these t-shirts. Do I need 20 yard work shirts? No, I don't. So I was able to give myself permission to let go. The other things were, we all have that drawer with the cables in it. So whether it's like old charger cables to phones or laptops or whatever, or HDMI cables, ethernet cables, these come in different things that we get and that we collect throughout our life. I had a drawer full of this stuff. And I was just so relieved when I was like, oh, I could totally replace these for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes. And that is where the items that I had to replace came in. There was an ethernet cable that I had to go and replace, Um, but it was real simple to get. And I wish we had a sexier answer, but yeah, mine's like an ethernet cable. And I think there was maybe an HDMI cable one time I had to replace. Yeah,
2: I think the truth is about these things, we're holding on to so many things and we'll do anything to justify clinging will do anything to justify our attachment. Attachment isn't good or bad, but if it's preventing you from doing what you want to do, if it's preventing you from loving, from caring, from being you, then maybe it makes sense to simply let go.
0: Absolutely. You guys will be impressed. My husband and I, and I have a 15-year-old stepson, we went to Greece a couple of years ago. We went for three weeks, one suitcase, For three people, for three weeks. That's amazing. What do you think of that? That's incredible. (laughs) Bravo. You
1: know, that's one of the awesome things that I've got from being a minimalist is now when I travel, my wife and I, we just have a carry-on bag and that's it. So we each have a carry-on bag and there's nothing to check. In fact, it has saved our butts a couple of times because there were some issues with planes being delayed and missing a flight and missing connections. And uh, one specific time we were trying to get on this airplane and she was like, well, I could put you on this plane, but any checked luggage you have, it may get lost. And we were like, perfect. We don't have any checked luggage. So yeah, I mean, how amazing was that to go to Greece with, with just one suitcase?
0: I cannot tell you. So my husband, he is a minimalist and he has been. When I first met him, I remember walking into his apartment and saying, where's all your stuff? And he is a paperless person. So he does not have any papers everything is digital. Like if he gets something, he will take a photo of it and it's gone straight away. Everything is filed and organized. And that really inspired me. And so when we went on this trip and he said, we're taking one suitcase, for three of us, I was like, ah, oh, that's funny. That's really funny. <laughs> and he's like, no, babe, trust me. It's cobblestone streets. You don't want to be walking around lugging your suitcases. He goes, just trust me. And I ended up wearing the same bikini the whole time. Yeah, And even though I did squeeze in three bikinis, because I said, (laughs) please let me bring three bikinis. I ended up wearing the same bikini the whole time. And I ended up wearing the same wrap around my waist. And my stepson, he had one shirt, he had one for the day and one for the night. And we washed it in the sink every single night. You really do not need all of this stuff. And when I told people this, they were just so shocked that we did that, and it was very, very amazing and so beautiful to just live simply for those three weeks in a bikini, and that was it.
1: That's incredible. See, Josh, you don't need to pack all those
2: bikinis. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, Ryan and I—we uh, I remember our, our first really long tour. We did a hundred cities, hundred and nineteen events, including six in in Australia, and it was fascinating because that whole year we just had one bag each, and Then you get back home after being on the road for 10 months and you're like, even as the minimalist, I feel like I forgot I own some of these things. And you start to even question as you temporarily remove those things from your life. Ryan said earlier, we're not about deprivation. We're not concerned with deprivation. We don't try to deprive ourselves. But sometimes temporarily depriving yourself, temporarily removing something from your life tells you whether or not it adds value. It's why Ryan did that packing party experiment early on. It wasn't about, hey, I'm just going to take all my stuff and get rid of it. Hey, I'm going to temporarily deprive myself of these things. And if it turns out it's adding value, I'm going to bring it back in slowly, slowly repopulating my life with the things that do add value and forgetting about the excess.
0: Mm, Absolutely. My husband has been following you guys from the very beginning, and that's where I got a lot of my inspiration from him because this is how he lives his life. However, he does like things, and he's sitting next to me right now and he's laughing. He does like things more than I like to buy things. And I have this rule with him, okay, if you purchase something, something has to go out. So if something comes in, something goes out. And he agrees. But what do you say to people who get really inspired on this journey and say their partner or their wife or their husband or whoever or their kids are not on the same page and do not want a bar of this thing called minimalism?
2: In fact, they're not going to be on the same page right away. And it's not about convincing anyone. You know, In fact, convincing is just a nice way to say coercing someone. My wife has this great t-shirt that says, coercion is not consent. And if I could append that, I would say convincing is not consent either. I'm not here to proselytize. I don't want to convince anyone. I don't want to convert anyone to minimalism. I went down this road because I saw the benefits for me. And so the best way to convince someone is not to convince them, but to simply show them the benefits. How might their life be better with less. Helping them understand the benefits of simplifying. For some people, it's, oh, I just want to to your home. I want more feng shui. I want it to be calmer. I want a gentler existence. I want to feel like I'm coming home to a sanctuary. That's great. That's a benefit for one person. For someone else, it's, I'm so sick and tired of this debt. It's tethering me to this lifestyle. It's tethering me to a career that I have to work 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week In order to pay for the car, to take me to the job, to pay for the car, to take me to the job, to pay for... You get the point. And so what we're going through here is this endless cycle of depriving ourselves of joy, of contentment, of tranquility, of equanimity. And if people can see that the benefits of simplifying will ultimately uncover that contentment that's already in there, it's by removing the chaos And so identifying for them, helping them identify what the benefits are, that's great. Now, you got to also think, how long did it take? It took me and Ryan almost 30 years to become minimalists. Well, it may not happen overnight for your significant other. And so you can support them. You can respect them. You can appreciate them. You can love them, even if you don't like every single possession they have. You'll never be on the same exact page because you have different preferences, That's what makes your relationship exciting and joyous to be able to have some differences. As long as you share the same values, the core values, those foundational values, then you want some differences in your relationship. And so you want to respect, not just tolerate, but respect their desires. Mm, I love that you
1: and your husband kind of came to this boundary together. First off, I think it shows a, a lot of love in the relationship where two people can have two different preferences and then come together to kind of meet in the middle somewhere. And that's really where, you know, I have had people ask questions very similar to that. And that's where I try to help them get. It's like, "Hey, you know, you're not going to get it to be 100% your way. They're not going to change overnight like Josh said." So the question is is how can you come up with a boundary together that both of you can respect and agree on? And that's really just a part of making a really strong relationship is coming together when you have two completely different preferences. Josh and I, we are like exact opposites. So when it comes to our business, we have way, way drastic uh, preferences with things. But because we respect one another, because we love one another, because we want each other to be happy, ultimately we appreciate those differences.
0: I love that. And what about children. Say you have just discovered this thing called minimalism and you have a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, and they are staunchly against the idea of getting rid of any of their stuff and they do not want to participate in this experiment of yours. Again, you lead by example, but what else could you do? Watch the documentary with them? Is there any other tips?
2: I have a friend who, he is a former pastor, and he said, if you want your kids to read the Bible, prohibit them from having it in the house. And so I don't think that teaching your kids that, hey, you're going to sit down and you're going to watch this documentary, as much as like that's going to gratify me that you're watching the documentary, I don't know that that's going, what's the old, I think P.T. Barnum said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so we may want to someone else's behavior to be different. Well, that's not loving. And so how do we love someone? Well, what does it mean to love? We don't even know what love is. That's why we wrote the new book, by the way, because we'll say, I love my wife, right? But I also love burritos. Now, one of those things is like, okay, I mean, I really like burritos. I think they're delicious. But the I love my wife Well, what do we even mean by that? A lot of people mean attachment. Well, attachment's not love. Attachment blocks love. Now, what does it mean to love? To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. What do do I mean by see? To appreciate them for who they are. Warts and all. And so, yeah, you may not love the fact that they have excess stuff in their room and maybe they're not as tidy as you, but they don't see the benefits of simplifying for them. And until they actually see it, not just intellectually, but viscerally, they see it in their heart, they're not going to make a change. And that's okay. We can still love them, even if we don't like every piece. Yeah, our friend Joshua
1: Becker, and I don't have any kids, so by the way, it's really easy for me to give parenting advice, you know, looking from the outside (laughs) in. But uh, our friend Joshua Becker, he talks about how his website's becomingminimalist.com. He talks about how you don't want to sit there and lay down these rules and restrictions for your children you don't wanna just tell them no all the time. In fact, you wanna tell them yes as much as possible until you have to tell them no, or rather, until you have to help them set a certain boundary. So instead of you know forcing a child into being something that maybe they aren't, Maybe it's, again, just like with your romantic partner, you can do this with your kid where you just come together and get a mutual boundary that both of you can kind of come to with two different perspectives. I'm thinking about, I just went to this event the other night, Will Smith, he just wrote a book about his life, and he was talking about raising his kids. And he talked about how with kids, he looks at them kind of like it's a seed, You know, doesn't necessarily know what that seed's going to turn into, so he just kind of like gives it the the nourishment that it needs to grow, and then once he can kind of see what it's growing into, it's not like he sees an apple tree and he's like, oh no, I need this to be a walnut tree, like starts to treat it like a walnut tree. He just kind of helps it grow into what it's growing into. So I, I think parents' number one job is really to enjoy their children. So enjoy your children first, nourish them next, and yes, maybe sometimes you have to help them set some boundaries, but you can do that together.
0: Mm, I love that. Beautiful. Sounds amazing. That book as well. I'm going to check that out. What was the last thing that you each brought?
2: Um, Let me think a little bit farther for yeah. you. So Christmas is coming up, right? There's nothing you can get me that would add value to my life. And so this is one of the most contentious times of year. We call it one of the most joyous times of year because it's supposed to be what? The holiday season. Well, we've transformed the holiday season into the holiday shopping season. And this one word shopping has completely changed our demeanor from joyous to anxious, from celebrating Christmas to surviving the holidays. Well, why is that? It's because we're overwhelmed. Let's be honest. The people in your life don't want another useless widget either. At least most of them don't. And they're just as stressed out about it as you are. And so I know the heart of your question is like, what is the last thing you bought? Yeah, I buy things if they're going to add value to my life. I bought groceries yesterday. And so now if you're asking like, what's the last physical thing? We bought a piece of equipment for our studio here in LA. You know, I'm not against things. Everything I own serves a purpose or it has the ability to augment or enhance an experience of life, right? And so I'm all for things. I'm all for experiences as well. But I'm also all for the pause, all for the space. I can celebrate the holidays without an obligatory gift. I don't have to thrust something onto you. And also, I don't have to expect anything from you either. And so it's time earlier than now, ideally, to set expectations with the people around us. We can gift experiences, we can gift consumables, or we can gift nothing at all other than our time. Because in today's busy world, it turns out, that, that old adage is true. There's an old bromide. Presence is the best present. Well, yeah, especially when we have so little time to spend with the people we love. Mm. I did think of something. So I have a pair of headphones that were on the fritz
1: for a, a long time. And I was like just toughing it out until I absolutely, I was like, okay, I have to replace these now because they're not working. So I had to you know, upgrade my headphones. But the reason why I want to share this is because I do want to show that we're not against the buying things. We're not against uh, consuming some things. We all need to consume. The problem is when we're consuming for the wrong reasons, which turns into impulsive consumerism. So yeah, you know, I had headphones. They broke. They weren't working. I had to finally get a new pair because I used them. I tried to go without them. I tried to fix them. There are many things I tried before I got the new pair, but yeah, ultimately had to replace them.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And I think that's really important what you brought up, Josh, about Uh, the holiday season coming up, we don't do presents. Like I said, I have a 15-year-old stepson and I've been with my husband for eight years. And the past eight years, we have not done presents for him for his birthday or Christmas. We do an experience. So that's what we do. And one year it was your birthday and Christmas present is your trip to Greece with us. So we do lots of little things like that and he loves it. And trust me, he gets enough from everybody else, from the (laughs) grandparents, from aunts and uncles and his other side of the family. So he gets enough Lego and all of those things. So before you think I'm depriving my child, just know that he gets enough. And it was actually the first Christmas, one of the first Christmases that I had with my husband, where I saw the amount of things that him and his cousins got that actually made me feel nauseous. And the wrapping paper and the boxes and the plastic and all of these things. And the thing was, the children, bless them, they were interested in that thing for five minutes and then it was the next thing. And then they've forgotten about that first present. And this isn't a criticism to children, but this just goes to show we don't need all of these things. And my son, he's just so happy with quality time with us and going somewhere with us whether that's to the beach or on an adventure like that for him brings him the most joy and my husband and I we don't buy each other presents for anniversaries or birthdays or christmas you know i i just say to him each time i would love a letter from you a card from you like i would love for you to just write to me from your heart and he does that and it's such a beautiful thing to do so everyone listening i want to i want you guys to think about this holiday season and maybe share with your families. Please don't get us any gifts or maybe have a one gift rule or something like that, or only get things that you actually really, truly need. And I feel the same as you, Josh. There's nothing that you could get me that would add value to my life right now. Like I don't need anything. I don't need anything at all. So for me, it's about spending more time with people that I love and sharing delicious food. That's what the holiday season is about for me.
2: Yeah, if you got me another widget, it would simply get in the way. And this is true with our kids as well. The average kid owns almost 300 toys, but plays with only about 12 of those daily. And so it's not that my daughter doesn't have any toys. She has a box of toys, and those things enhance her experience of life and her playtime with friends. But study after study shows that the more toys kids have, they become more distracted and they don't enjoy quality playtime. And so if Ella, my daughter, had 10 boxes of toys, it's not not like she'd be 10 times happier. She would actually be 10 times more discontented because those other nine boxes would create that paradox of choice. And then those toys would get in the way of her playtime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have one box for my daughter as well. And we bring that box out and I'll pull out one or two things and she plays with that. And then I put those things away and then I'll pull out, you know, another one or two things. And you're right. It's so interesting. They don't need more things and really pulling it back. And she could have hours of fun with just a spoon, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so true. It's my favorite toy. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Okay, guys. Let's pretend now that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your book, because I absolutely think they need to be in the school curriculum, what is one other book you would choose?
1: Well, for me, I think this book actually might be in some high schools, but there's a book by a man named Dave Ramsey. It's called Total Money Makeover, and it is one of the best financial books I've ever read, because it really talks about the chase with ephemerality and using money and racking up debt to do that. And then it talks about going through the pain of what happens, you know, when we leave that checkout line and the high wears off all of that pain we have. And then it shows some very clear steps on how to get out of debt. But I think the best way to get out of debt is to avoid it in the first place. So I would love to see a book like that just uh, circulated in every single
2: high school. Anthony DeMello has a book called The Way to Love, and it's, it's a masterpiece. And it's a really, really tiny book. And I think if you want to understand about the drivers to your attachments, it's a great place to start.
0: Mm. Thank you. I'm going to check both of those out. We'll link to those in the show notes as well as your books. I would love to hear now, what is your morning routines? I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and set themselves up. So can you talk us through a quote unquote typical morning for you each?
2: This is going to be really boring for you, but (laughs) I I avoid routines. I avoid habits. I avoid uh, a lot of these things that we've sort of been propagated by the media, by culture, by self-improvement. The problem I have is I used to be the goal guy and I would try to pursue these goals. I'd systematize everything. I'd have methodologies and prescriptions and how-tos and those things made me miserable. Most mornings I tend to write, I tend to exercise and I tend to read, but it's not what happens every morning. I also go for a walk with my wife most mornings, right at sunrise, but I don't do it every day. I don't require that it happens every day. We were talking about this on the podcast the other day, but I kind of feel like my life is sort of like a a Terrence Malick film. Like, not a whole lot happens, and it's really beautiful.
0: I love that. Beautiful.
2: Yeah, I'll tell
1: you what a perfect, and again, like, I'm not a stickler for routines, because, you know, when you're podcasting and, and touring, there's, you know, you can't always do the same routine every single morning. But a good morning for me, that's me waking up, Drinking some coffee, having some quiet time for some reflection, whether that's meditation or maybe it's just uh, time to reflect on what happened the day before, what's going to happen throughout the rest of the day. And then, yes, definitely reading, or I do audiobooks a lot too, or like listening to a podcast. But I really like those mornings where I can start off calm and then get some kind of stimulation with some thoughts to really kind of get my mind going.
0: Mm, I love that. Okay, I've got three rapid fire questions for you each. Are you ready?
1: Let's Let's
0: do it. it. (laughs) Okay. Josh, you can answer first. What is one thing we can do today for our health? Just one thing.
2: Yeah, we could stop eating processed, refined oils.
0: Mm. I love it.
2: Yeah, I was going to say stop eating processed foods,
1: but that's kind of a cop-out. It's kind of the same answer. Anyone can walk for 15 minutes a day. If you're not walking on a regular basis, just do 15 minutes a day. It's a game changer for many reasons, mental health, but also your physical health.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Okay, next one. What is one thing that we can do for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life.
2: To need less.
1: That's what we used to tell our employees when we were managing people back in the corporate world. They'd ask for a raise and we would say, you know, the best raise is to spend (laughs) less money. (laughs) Amen. We were such jerks. Oh, um, I would say Man, if you're not saving any money at all, start saving something. So there's a step before that because I know some people are probably like, well, I'm too broke to save. Create a budget if you do not have a monthly budget. Because I have had, I used to mentor and mentees would say, oh, I need to make more money and you know, I'm broke. And I'd be like, well, what's your budget? They're like, well, I don't need a budget to tell me I'm broke. I'm like, but you do. You need You at least need a budget to tell yourself how broke you are. So creating a budget is a wonderful first step to financial peace and freedom.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the last one, what is one thing we can do today for more love in our life?
2: We can see people for who they are without trying to change them. Mm,
1: Show gratitude. I mean, even when on your worst day, there's still things to be grateful for. And when you can see those things, it's a lot easier to love. Absolutely.
0: This has been so awesome. I've loved our conversation. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet?
1: Mm, I don't think so. If anyone's interested in seeing our work, they can go to theminimalists.com. Everything is there.
2: But other than that, what do you think, Josh? Yeah. I mean, if you leave here today with one message... Let it be this, love people and use things, because the opposite never works.
0: I love that. Thank you so much, guys. You are helping so many people. You truly are in all the areas of their life, all the different areas. You are serving, you are inspiring, you are helping so many people. So I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to serve you. How can we give back to you today?
2: Well, thankfully, I don't need anything. If you find value in this, that's wonderful. If not, that's okay too. If you want more from us, then you can find the podcast, you can find the YouTube, you can find us on the road if that piques your interest. If not, that's totally okay too.
0: Guys, this has been so awesome. You guys are the biggest legends. You're so much fun. You have so much to share and I'm so grateful for your time today. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege to share this time with you. So thank you so
1: much. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. We're grateful. Thanks again.
0: I am so inspired to take my own minimalist journey to the next level and to really get intentional with every single purchase, even deeper. I'm going to be asking the questions, do I really need this and does this bring me joy before I purchase anything? And I want to encourage you guys to do the same because we do not need more stuff and we do not need more things to add to landfill. So please pass this episode on to anyone that you think it would really inspire. And if you loved it, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcast, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for any new episodes. And please come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got from this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you. And before I go, I want to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. don't forget to head to comparisonitis.com to get your copy of my latest book and all the free goodies that go with it. I cannot wait for you to read it and to hear what you think.